1: 45 years ago, Marvin Gaye released his masterful album, What's Going On, and it's just as relevant today as ever. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll
3: do a classic album dissection of What's Going On, and we'll review Black America again, the new record from Rapper Common. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we want to do a deep album dissection of one of the classic Motown records of the 70s, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, which was released in May of 1971. culmination of a period in Marvin Gaye's life which was very troubled Jim this man was probably as reliable a hit maker as Motown had during the 60s he was one of the most versatile singers they had he could go up tempo and rough he could sing the sweet ballads he could do duets he was all over the charts in the 60s with with songs like Hitchhike and Can I Get a Witness ain't that peculiar how sweet it is to be loved by you The duets with Kim Weston and Mary Wells, and finally Tammy Terrell. He was a superstar. In- and
3: a multi-instrumentalist, as versatile on, on piano and drums as anyone of the great Motown session players.
1: Absolutely. He, he could get down there on the floor with the musicians and work with them in addition to being the star singer in the Motown stable. Now, there's a, several things that occurred in Marvin Gaye's life, in the late 60s that led up to the making of what's going on and uh, heavily influenced its tone and made it such a dramatic departure from what he had done before. To me, I think the turning point in many ways for, for Marvin Gaye's career Was first of all meeting and then singing with Tammy Terrell, this great partnership of all the duet partners he had. There seemed to be a connection there, unlike any of the others. And they had some uh, marvelous songs. Your Precious Love in '67 Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, which I think was the culmination of their uh, partnership. Uh, Tammy Terrell had been suffering migraine headaches for for a number of months and finally collapsed in Marvin's arms on stage in the summer of 67. Uh, She was diagnosed with brain cancer and had numerous operations thereafter, eventually dying in 1970. And Marvin never recovered from that. In many ways, people who knew him uh, say he was a changed man after that. There was two sides to Marvin Gaye's personality. One was that he was the loyal soldier, the loyal servant of Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown Records. Uh, Barry was his friend, but also his mentor. And if Barry wanted something, Marvin was going to give it to him. Even if it meant he had to sing this cheesy song, Mm -hmm. but it was going to be a top 10 hit, he would do it because he wanted to, to make Barry Gordy happy. You know, there was an additional layer to their relationship in that uh, Marvin was married to Barry's older sister, Anna. They were family. The other Marvin was the moody guy who would go off by himself and not be seen for days, weeks, months, sometimes at a time. He liked to get high, you know, and he thought of himself as an artist, not just a, a soldier on the label but an artist who had a vision of what he wanted to do in the future that may have been very different from what Motown wanted. Well, there was a year-long, you know, retreat pretty much, Gay stepping out of the spotlight
3: before what's going on, and it included, according to some biographies, a suicide attempt. It was Barry Gordy's father that pulled the handgun out of his hand.
1: Yes. Uh, You know, a troubled troubled soul, without a doubt. Um, One of his last big hits during this uh, great period of success in the 60s was with a Norman Whitfield song. Norman Whitfield was a new voice in that uh, songwriting stable of Motown writers, um, and a strong one. Uh, he wrote a song called "I Heard It Through the Grapevine" that was initially recorded by Gladys Knight and the Pips, and a pretty good version, mm-hmm. up tempo, strongly sung by Gladys Knight. Marvin remade the song in his own uh, image uh, soon after, and it became an even bigger hit once he recorded it. Uh, a number one single, uh, absolutely ruled uh, in 1968
4: on the charts. It took me by surprise
1: And that moodiness, that brooding nature of Marvin's version, you know, this whole notion of people are out to get me, people are talking about me, you know, and I don't like it. It fit the mood of the times. I mean, we're talking about a period here, you know, we're coming off uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. It threw Marvin into a deep tailspin. From 1969 through 71, Marvin Gaye did not perform on a concert stage. Right. He spent a lot of time on his own and the label is wondering, what's going on, man? And, you know, yeah. like they were literally, yeah. literally asking him that question. Are you going to make any more music? The word was that Marvin was sitting around with these, hanging out with these football players in the Detroit Lions team, and he suddenly became enamored with this idea of becoming a professional athlete. Uh, so he was dabbling with the idea of playing football. He was arguing a lot with Anna, you know, his wife. They weren't getting along. That marriage, which started with their marriage in 63, the couple separated formally in 73, eventually was divorced a few years later. So that's going on in his life.
3: You know, the critical shorthand, uh, Greg, sometimes is is that Marvin got political with what's going on. But he'd been thinking about these things for years. Uh, there's a famous quote of him talking about the 1965 riots in Watts uh, as a pivotal moment in his life. And he said, with the world exploding around me, how was I supposed to keep singing love songs? And then he covers, and it becomes a hit in the UK in 1970, uh, Abraham, Martin, and John, the song about the assassinations of of, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and John Kennedy. uh, Popularized originally by Dion, but Marvin Gaye puts his own stamp on that song.
1: Well and not not to mention the fact Jim that uh, a lot of black music had changed you know the motown yes. sound that had been sort of upbeat and unifying had grown darker uh, I'd, I'd mentioned uh, Norman Whitfield earlier in in the context of writing I heard it through the Grapevine this guy you know simplified uh, the motown sound ways two or three chords A lot of funk, a lot of attitude. Those songs that he was writing for The Temptations, Cloud Nine, Mm -hmm. Psychedelic Shack, Ball of Confusion, Smiling Faces Sometimes for the Undisputed Truth, these were not happy songs. These were songs about people who are angry, people who are oppressed. This was an extension of what Curtis Mayfield was doing with the impressions, and then Curtis came out... With his 1970s solo debut, Curtis. And the first song on it is called Don't Worry, If There's a Hell Below, We're All Going to Go. I mean, this is dark, dark stuff. Suddenly, black music is taking this turn. After Martin Luther King's assassination, the rioting in the streets, this is starting to be reflected back in the way music was being constructed by African Americans. So
3: another critical shorthand is that Marvin Gaye is the guy who made black music political. Clearly, this was already in the air, and lots of artists were moving in that direction. He just takes it further than everybody else. I think it's, it's interesting, though, to note that the real nugget that begins what's going on starts with a member of the Four Tops, yeah. Obie Benson. May 1969, the Four Tops are on tour, uh, and Obie Benson witnesses this uh, beating, uh, an act of police brutality on anti-war protesters in Berkeley's People's Park. It's a, it, it becomes known as Bloody Thursday. He's disgusted, and he says, I saw this and started wondering— What's, what's going on? What is happening here? What is this about? Why are they sending kids uh, from, from throughout the U.S., halfway around the world, and, and they're losing their lives? Why are they attacking? And then we're attacking other kids who are against that in the street. He begins asking these questions. And it doesn't start with a statement, this song. It starts with a question. He goes back to Detroit after this Four Tops tour, and he sits down with uh, one of the Motown staff songwriters, Al Cleveland, and they write a song. They take it to Marvin Gaye. Gay is thinking of using it for a, a, another uh, group, uh, but they convince him, no, 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 you should keep this, you should sing it, and
1: Gay rewrites the lyrics. gay's rewriting the lyrics, and uh, it was interesting that to, to read the quotes from Benson after uh, Marvin, uh, you know, started tinkering with the song. He said he made it more ghetto, Yeah. you know, uh, and it, as the song was being recorded in Motown, suddenly Marvin's inspired, I got to get this down. He is producing this track. He'd gotten some confidence as a producer working with this group called The Originals and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this session myself. I don't need any help from the, the Motown stable of producers. One of the key changes was he comes out from behind the mixing board, the producer of the record is also singing the record, and he's sitting in the middle of the musicians on the floor of the right. Motown studios. Apparently, according to the musicians who were there, big cloud of smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not going to say exactly who, was, where, who it was emanating from. But there's there a lot a big, of drinking. There's a lot of pot smoking. Big cloud of smoke in the, in, the, in the room at the time. Marvin at the piano at the center of it all, wearing that knit cap that was his trademark around that time. And, and, and writing, basically working the, the Funk Brothers, the great Motown rhythm section, through what he wanted here. Great moment in that song, the saxophone that weaves its way throughout the song, Mm -hmm. was essentially Eli Fontaine warming up. (laughs) He wasn't even playing on the song at the time. Doesn't think it's a tape. Marvin says, you know, just go over there and warm up, get ready. Marvin's rolling the tape. Mm -hmm. He knows Mm -hmm. what he wants. He hears it, he goes, you know, and so Eli Fontaine comes over to join the session. He goes, okay, I'm ready, boss. Marvin goes, Don't no, go home, you're done. Okay, we already got we, it. We got what we needed. Greg, even before you hear that
3: saxophone, you hear this crazy party. People talking with one another, whooping it up, uh, shouts of joy. We wanted to learn more about how that idea came together and the recording of the whole title track. So we thought we'd talk to someone who was there. As we mentioned earlier... Marvin had thoughts of becoming a football player, and he was hanging out with members of the Detroit Lions, including Lem Barney, a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Lem contributed uh, talking during that party scene and backup vocals to the title track, and he even earned a gold record for his contributions. Lem, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so very much. Uh, Tell us how you and Marvin Gaye became friends. He used to come to a lot of the games, right?
5: Yes, he did. He certainly did. Him, along with Smokey Robinson, would support the Detroit Lions by coming down to Tiger Stadium. And afterwards, we'd go over to Petey Larco's Restaurant. when lose, or draw, and they would be there. And uh, most of the teammates got a chance to meet them and hobnob with them and even the coaches.
1: So, Lem, Marvin asked you and a few other Detroit athletes to participate in the recording of what's going on. Tell us a little bit about what that day was like.
5: We went over at Marvin's house off provider of Drive, and he said, look. Let's go down to the Motown studio and do this recording. And he had checked with Barry, and Barry gave him an okay. Uh, let's do it. And uh, we went down to the studio, and about a half an hour later, we was finished. We must have did about nine or ten takes and uh, half an audit. hour,
3: <laughs> half an hour, and nine or ten runs through the song.
5: Yes, but I mean we had done a lot of, a lot of other training over at his house.
3: Ah, okay. And
5: finally, at in the studio, about the tenth taking, he said, this is it, and as a result, end up being a gold record, and I look at my gold record from time to time, and will always think about the late, great Marvin Gaye.
3: So the sounds of the party that kick off the title track, What's Going On?, that's not faking it. You guys are having fun in the studio.
5: Absolutely, big time. <laughs> and big
3: then time. I've heard, and you have to confirm <laughs> if this is true, there's that wild, trilling uh, kind of sound, of it. that's you? Yes. <laughs> Was yeah, that- it
5: was. Uh, and, you know, Marvin say, let's have a good time with it. And we rehearsed it and everything. Say, so, hey, brother, what's happening? Yeah, brother, like solid right on. <laughs> <laughs> the song starts, and uh, we had a great time doing it. Hey, hey, hey. hey what's up, hey, man? Brother, what's up? Uh, this is a party, hey, it, man. Right
4: yeah, on. brother, I can like dig it. solid right on.
1: When uh, you were working with him, did you see a different side of Marvin? You know, the the Marvin in the the recording studio, the guy making these records, versus the guy you saw after the football games or in a a more casual atmosphere?
5: Oh, he was very serious about it. I mean, you know, it was just like, if you listen from the earliest start from his earliest record to his last record, he never would put anything out until he felt it was solid. And uh, he was just a joyful thing. I look at my gold record from time to time and, you know, wish his soul forever, rest in peace.
3: Lem, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, a uh, great football player and, uh, and a musician with a gold record to his credit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for
1: coming on Sound Opinions, Lem.
5: Thank you so very much. Good speaking with you guys.
1: So the last piece of the song, Jim, is he's recorded the rhythm track with the Funk Brothers. And he's got that saxophone. And now he's ready to put the final touch on, and that is the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Again, not traditional Motown, right? David Vendipit, the arranger uh, working with the Detroit Symphony, comes into the studio and they layer these strings over the top of the arrangement. And there are tears streaming down Marvin's face as he hears the playback, realizing this is what I wanted, this is what this album should be. Those black bottoms, as he calls them, with the European classical strings over the top. And then his voice at the center orchestrated to sound like three or four Marvins. You know, There's a conversation going on with Marvin using those multitude of voices that he had within him. The rough Marvin, the sweet Marvin, the falsetto Marvin conversing with one another in the middle of the track. This was the new sound that Marvin Gaye wanted.
4: Don't punish me Brother. with brutality Brother. Come on, talk Brother. to me Brother. You can see Brother. what's going
3: We've been talking about what's going on, the single and the title track. When we come back from a short break, we'll talk about the reception of the song and dig into what's going on, the album. And later, we'll review the new record from Chicago rapper Common. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
4: of my father god is my friend he made this world
3: Hey, podcast listeners, sign up for the Sound Opinions newsletter and every week you'll get a preview of the show and a heads up about our upcoming events. Go to soundopinions.org for more info. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We have our professor costumes on, and we're doing a classic album (laughs) dissection of literally one of the greatest albums in in pop music history, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, released in May 71. Greg, we heard about the recording of that incredible single, the title track, What's Going On, uh, a watershed moment in music history. And the chief of the label, Barry Gordy, who has now left Detroit, relocated to California, sits down, and Marvin plays it for him. And this man, to whom Gay has been loyal for so many years, a team player, he's married to his sister, right, Mm -hmm. says, and I quote, this is the worst thing (laughs) I have ever
1: heard in my life. (laughs) Yeah, I think Barry sort of missed the boat there, but it was so (laughs) radical— it, it really was. It was a radical sound. And, and let me tell you how radical this was at the time, because Motown just simply wasn't making records this way. They had been extremely successful with a variation on a formula based on a three-minute song with a verse, a chorus, a bridge, and they were very good at it. Now, Norman Whitfield started expanding the sound with The Temptations, but now Marvin was taking it in a completely different direction. Um, first of all, he was going back to his roots as a singer. Doo-wop, gospel... You could hear that that tone in his voice. It was heavily influenced by those particular sounds from his childhood. Then there was this jazz element that he wanted to introduce. And the Motown guys, the Funk Brothers, loved it because they were all jazz players at heart, and they never really got a chance to improvise. They couldn't cut loose. Yeah, the way Marvin was allowing them to do then adding the strings on top of that another layer uh, was a master stroke and when you hear of the rhythm tracks mostly motown was about that banging driving uh, rhythm get back up with at the, the hand bottom uh, yeah layers of layers of rhythm marvin pulled it back a little bit there was a lot of latin percussion on this record a lot of hand percussion um, so there was more room for the instruments to float around rather than to this hard banging funk sound that was typical of Motown. One problem, Jim. What's going on is finally released mm-hmm. in early 71. It goes to number two. And Barry Gordy goes, uh, we need an album to go with this song, now that you've proven me wrong. And Marvin goes, uh, uh, yeah, I got a few few things laying around. I got some stuff in the hopper, but... He had some fragments laying around, and in a 10-day recording session in March with the Funk Brothers, with the string section with Marvin's beautiful orchestrations and uh, ideas floating around in his head at the center of the of the recording session that came up with what became the What's Going On record. I think, uh, you know, when he put that What's Going On uh, title track right at the top for a reason, and then it segues right into What's Happening, Brother. And I finally got a sense of listening to the record again of what he was going for, you know, the party atmosphere that he had with Lem Barney and Mel Farr and his friends in the studio creating on what's going on. So you've got this very political song, very socially conscious song, very sad and troubled song. At the same time, there's this party going on. What he's recreating there is his brother and his friends coming back to Detroit from Vietnam. Yeah. And, you know, there's the, the welcoming, welcome home party. And that's what's going on in these tracks. It's like, hey, what's going on? The, these These guys are coming back from Vietnam and they're staggered by what they see. ¶¶
4: getting back but you knew I would War is hell When will it end When will people start getting together again Are things really getting better Like the newspaper said What else is new my friend Besides
1: I mean, what, what happened? What happened to Detroit? What happened to the country while we were gone for these three years? We, we thought we were fighting to save the country or at least ennoble it, and it's, and it's gotten worse. Uh, racism, unemployment, you know, the ability to get a job, the violence in the streets, it's just nearly as bad as it is back in Vietnam. The heroin plague. Flying High
3: in the Friendly Sky is about the heroin ec- epidemic taking over Poor African American communities. Uh, you know, one of the lyrics. I know I'm hooked, my friend. To the boy who makes slaves out of men. Uh, it's a, it's a brilliant uh, little twist there. Uh, you know, fly the friendly skies was an airlines uh, tag, and and much like uh, Kirk Cobain took uh, smells like teen spirit from a deodorant. You know, Marvin is taking that uh, and and turning it. it. It's not a celebration of being high.
4: that can't help me
3: Save the children. Right? This emotional, heartbreaking plea uh, to to remember disadvantaged kids. Uh, Poor white kids, poor black kids. Save them. Who really cares? Who's willing to try to save a world that is destined to die? So he's casting, you know, above and beyond the plight of Vietnam veterans, uh, he's looking at, at what's left of America in 1971 that people are coming home to.
1: Yeah, Save the Children, Jim, is a really moving song. And at first I thought, oh, you know, what a cliche, you know, Save the Babies. But it's almost like, as you listen to it in the context of the songs that have come before it, you know, the conversations with his brother and about the devastation they're coming back to in their home country, the, the drug use that has uh, gone rampant in Flying High, Save the children is almost like a, a, you know, a, a person uh, from the deck of the Titanic as it's going down. You know, we can't save ourselves, but at least let's see if we can save the next generation. You know, and, and it's a desperate fight for, for the survival of, of the human race in a lot of ways.
4: When I look at the world When I look at the world It fills me with sorrow It fills me with sorrow Little children today. Children today.
3: Are they gonna suffer tomorrow?
4: Really suffer tomorrow?
3: Well, we each want to highlight a a tune. I want to dive deep for a minute on Mercy, Mercy Me, the ecology. is one of the most ahead-of-its-times songs in the history of pop music, uh, in the history of protest music, right? Marvin Gaye, in 1971, is talking about the environment. It is beginning to become an issue, okay? Uh, You know, we remember Richard Nixon for a lot of things. But actually, in January 1970, he created the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And in that year, they passed the Clean Air Act. Let's go back to 1971. Remember Mm. the commercial of the Native American standing on the side of the road and people are throwing trash at at his feet? Right. That comes out in 1971, Iron Eyes Cody, you know, the actor, Keep America Beautiful was the campaign. But, um, you know, the environment is not a major issue for many people. The war is much more pressing. The war on poverty continues, right? Gay is there ahead of time. Um, Another story about Barry Gordy being out of touch here, when- He heard that Marvin had this song, Mercy, Mercy, Me, The Ecology. Barry asked uh, what the word ecology even meant, Hmm. right? Barry does not emerge. I mean, Barry was a visionary genius, right? right? But it doesn't emerge as very in touch with uh, Marvin Gaye. You know, so the lyrics are extraordinary, incredibly poetic. Mercy, Mercy, Me, all the things they, what they used to be. Where did the blue skies go? The music is extraordinary. One of Gaye's, I think, most heartfelt Vocal performances, uh, you know, you really hear that voice. I, I don't know if it was ever uh, better.
4: Oh, mercy, mercy me. All things and what they used to be lost. In the heart. Oil wasted on the oceans and on our seas. Fishful mercury. Lost. Oh, mercy, mercy me. They used to be plasma. Radiation underground and in the sky Animals and birds who live nearby by the night Oh, mercy, mercy, me, mercy, All things and what they used to be
3: You know, earlier in 2016, Greg, we had the great environmental journalist and activist Bill McKibben on the show. And he said, mercy, mercy, me, the ecology is simply the greatest, most motivating environmental anthem ever.
1: Well, it's amazing how timely so much of this record is. You know, the first Earth Day was in April of 1970. Right. You know, so the, these these themes were in the air, and Marvin was picking up on them. It truly was like a, a newspaper bulletin, a, you know, a, 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 a 6 o'clock newscast for a generation. I'm, I'm fascinated by the way he would juxtapose these beautiful hymn-like tracks, like uh, Mercy, Mercy, Me, one of the centerpieces of the album, is immediately preceded by a song called God is Love, which is right. a very short song. It's right. like a prayer. And the song that I want to highlight, Inner City Blues Make Me Wanna Holler, is preceded by Holy Holy, Another, it's another hymn, but it goes straight into this urban hell. He's juxtaposing the spiritual with the reality of what's going down here on, on the planet and in ways picking up on things that the staple singers were doing and sort of saying, wait a minute, we're not just waiting for the afterlife, there's a life right. we got to get through here first before we can move on. I was wondering, my
3: friend, how long it would take you <laughs> to mention the Staples Singers. Well, of course, you wrote a great biography of Mavis Staples. But that notion of we may be singing a celebratory song, right. well, that doesn't mean we are blind to
1: all of the, 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 the violence and ugliness surrounding us. And as with many uh, things in this on this record, this, uh, the song Inner City Blues, uh, Make Me Want to Holler in parentheses, uh, almost started off as a joke. One of the Motown staff writers, James Nix, who Marvin had really started to rely upon, they'd worked together on these tracks with the originals, which were very, very important in laying the groundwork for this album in terms of the voicings and the tone of those songs, uh, were joking about the fact that they didn't like to pay taxes. Right, right, right. Who does? We just don't. We're we're overtaxed and we hate paying the taxes. And they were joking about this and said, you know, the song started out as, as as this kind of self referential complaint. But then it expanded from there, some really uh, telling lines, you know, the moon landings, all these things, what's going... Well, you're spending all this money to send men to the moon, and meanwhile, Detroit is crumbling before our eyes. ¶¶
4: This ain't living, this ain't living No, no, baby This ain't living No, 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 no no. Inflation No change
1: Great line that opens the song: "Rockets, moonshots, spend it on the have-nots." You know the the line later in the song: "Trigger happy policing, panic is spreading. God knows where we're heading." Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like a Kendrick Lamar record from last year? I mean, these these songs are still very apt for what's going on in in our cities. And uh, Marvin Gaye was not afraid to talk about them in songs at the time these were very controversial subjects and I think the one thing that Barry Gordy hated was controversy. He wanted to sell a lot of records, and this was going to prevent him yeah. from selling records. We you can know? never
3: forget that this was the man who started a charm school, mm-hmm. you know, for his stable of artists, teaching them how to, you know, how to dress, how to groom themselves, how to present
1: themselves on stage, how to walk. So the record, you know, to complete the package, Jim. Uh, again, radical moves, and this should be noted: the fact that the musicians who performed on the record are actually named in the liner notes to that record. That was the first time. Motown had extended this courtesy to those great musicians. Right. You know, Gay doing it, yeah. The bassist James Jamerson, you know, being name checked on an album cover. I mean, the guy basically built that sound, uh, right. the foundation of the Motown sound with his bass. The lyrics were printed on a Motown album for the first time. Uh, again, an indication that Marvin Gaye. Uh, had a little bit of clout, and he was going to use it because he thought it was important that that sort of information get out there. And finally, that album cover. You have a pensive Marvin with that upturned collar in the rain looking out over the horizon Mm -hmm. as if he's looking to the next world, something beyond the world we're living in. Um, So everything about this package spoke the future, new... I'm a radical shift in in tone and the way this artist was presenting himself. Marvin Gaye had truly become a a major, major artist. He was one already, but here was another facet to that personality.
3: So what's going on finally comes out, Greg, in May 1971, that cover you were just describing. Marvin's looking ahead. People are paying attention. Now, you know, for Barry Gordy, for all his doubting of this record, it spawns three top ten singles. Mm -hmm. It is a huge commercial success, but also significantly a tremendous artistic success. And his peers are listening, right?
1: Stevie Wonder, who happens to be uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, label mate on Motown, uh, just turns 21. His contract is up. He looks at what Marvin's uh, getting away with, you know, <laughs> yep. a top 10 pop album, number one R&B that basically Marvin Gaye produces, sings, writes on his own without any influence from Barry Gordy or the, the Motown regulars, says, I want a piece of that action. Uh, I want complete artistic control, just like Marvin was able to wrest mm-hmm. from the label at considerable with considerable difficulty, and gets it, uh, because otherwise they're going to lose him. And he reels off a string of masterpieces in the mold of what's going on. Music of my mind in 72, talking book, inner visions, fulfillingness first finale, songs in the key of life. Would these albums have existed if what's going on had not been recorded first? Uh, I don't think so. I think Stevie took a cue from the great Marvin Gaye there.
4: But we are sick and tired
1: Franklin, titling an album Young, Gifted, and Black. Uh, the staple singers with Be Altitude," you know, Respect Yourself, I'll Take You There, they were already writing songs about this, but they felt emboldened to make an entire album uh, based around these themes. Harlem and Funkadelic, you know, going from the streets right to the, you know, outer space. Yeah, the spaceship, uh, you know, the concepts, you know, let's make a whole album based around a theme. Uh, George Clinton was definitely taking cues from Marvin Gaye, Al Green making the Bell album, uh, emboldened to do a concept level work uh, in at album length. You know, transitioning the single from being the centerpiece of African American pop music to the album being the centerpiece of it. Now, these kind of things had been done before in African American music. Obviously, I mean, you you go back to something like Duke Ellington's. Black, Brown, and Beige album in the mm. 40s or, or Coltrane with A Love Supreme. Ah. You know, these are spiritual tone poems that are album length. And clearly Gay was taking some cues from that. But for an African-American pop album uh, to be addressing these themes at album length was unique. And, and Marvin, I think, really paved the way for generations of artists to do the same.
3: Now, I'm going to read you a list of albums we have both given double buy to in the last nine months. Michael Kiwanuka. Frank Ocean, Mick Jenkins, Solange. Jamila Woods. Maxwell, Chance the Rapper, Kendrick Lamar, Beyonce. We have been blown away by these records, all of which are talking about what's going on today. Black Lives Matter, increased, a continuing, never-ending poverty in the streets. Uh, You know, in in the wake of the first black president, have we made much progress? Uh, Thematically, lyrically, these albums are unimaginable without... The ground paved by what's going on, and musically, the influences continue to live in so many different directions. Not a lot the chance the rapper has in common with Maxwell, and yet both of them are using this record as a touchstone. Uh, no exaggeration to say its, it's influence is uh, immortal. That wraps up our classic album dissection of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Do you have an opinion on this album, Marvin Gaye, or anything in the musical universe? Call 888 859 1800 and leave us a message. Coming up, we'll review the new album from Common and Greg will take a track to the desert island. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Back Sound Opinions, that is a little bit of Black America Again, the title track from the 11th studio album by Common. Greg Common is a rapper from the south side of Chicago, born Lonnie Rashid-Lynn, who uh, we've covered throughout his whole career. Emerged in the early 90s after winning the uh, best upcoming hype title from The Source magazine, Uh, a real freestyle pro. You know, you give him any subject and he can make up a rhyme. Early on, uh, he's recording as Common Sense. He uh, eventually shortens his name to Common, um, leaves Chicago for a while, taps into that really creative uh, posse of Philadelphia artists, the whole Roots group, Erica Badu, uh, Lauren Hill, right, Q Tip, uh, and has his, his career commercial and critical high point with records such as Like Water for Chocolate. Then he finds another mentor and producer, a young Kanye West with B in 2005. From that point on, he's mixing recording with acting. People may know him from that AMC Wild West series, Hell on Wheels. It looks like he's going the route of like Ice Cube and many other rappers. We're going to see him in movies. We're not going to hear him do music. But then uh, another late career high point. When Glory, the theme from the film Selma, recorded with John Legend, uh, wins some Academy Awards, Best Original Song, and Common and John Legend perform uh, at the Academy Awards. Now it's studio album number 11. What is Common giving us? Let's hear a track. We'll come back and give our opinions. This is Letter to the Free by Common from Black America again on Sound Opinions.
2: Southern leaves, southern trees we hung from Barren souls, heroic songs unsung Forgive them father, they know this not is undone Tied with the rope that my grandmother died Pride of the pilgrims affect lives of millions Slave days separating fathers from children Institution ain't just a building But a method of having black and brown bodies filled them. We ain't seen as human beings with feelings. Will the U.S. ever be us? Lord willing. For now we know the new Jim Crow. To stop, search, and arrest our souls. Police and policies patrol. Philosophies of control. A cruel hand taking hold. We let go to free them so we can free us. America's moment to come to Jesus.
1: That is Letter to the Free from the latest Common record. Jim, uh, Common's been re-energized in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I think even he was the first to acknowledge that, uh, you know, his acting career had sort of diverted him. His records are starting to flatten out a little bit. But he has been re-inspired in the last few years, and it's very obvious on this record. I think he's portraying himself in, on this record very much as a spiritual messenger, like he's almost an emissary from another era. Don't forget, this guy has influenced two generations of hip-hop, yeah. and he's speaking with a lot of uh, conviction on this record. The key subject here is this issue of what freedom means. In, in this record, uh, you know, once uh, slavery and the plantation uh, imprisoned African-Americans, now it's the criminal justice system and federal prisons. You know, and he's keying off that great book uh, that Michelle Alexander wrote a few years ago, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness. He even name checks it in one of the songs, and, and as well as referencing the old masters. You know, there's a number of public enemy references in this record, that political fire. Uh, You know, he uses an extensive James Brown sample about uh, Black Pride. Uh, And there's a great sample of Old Dirty Bastard, where he sounds (laughs) oracular. Old Dirty Bastard (laughs) sounds like a preacher on fire. So Common is weaving together uh... african-american history african-american music and creating Uh, A a, a concept album about what it means to be free and how it still, after centuries of struggle, still eludes African-Americans today. It's a great record. It's a buy-it record. It's absolutely a buy-it record. Um, There's always been two huge strikes
3: against Common. Number one, from the beginning, written off as a backpacker or a granola eater. He's soft, right? He's alternative rap, right? And number two, now that he's old, right? He's 44. That's over the hill in hip-hop by a, a, a good 20, you know, 15 years right Um, things that people forget common is incredibly deft with words he can be super serious one minute portraying the plight of someone languishing in jail who can't get to see his son in in a track like a bigger picture called free and then the next uh, making a crack that maria sharpova makes more money than serena williams and that ain't right serena williams who common dated right you know these are funny these are self-referential these are honest and ultimately, it makes the message stronger about empowerment and freedom. We gave that incredible list before of artists who were carrying on the tradition of Marvin Gaye. And we made the statement that the last year has been an incredible one for forwarding that message. Uh, you know, Common and Black America, again, are absolutely on that list. And it's, it's an amazing record or double by it.
5: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
4: Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
3: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a little vacation break to a desert island, pops a quarter in the jukebox,
1: plays a track we can't
3: live without. Greg, I'm eager to hear yours.
1: Thank you, Jim. Uh, John Prine has been on my mind uh, quite a bit lately because I'm going to go see him in a couple of days in concert. He's uh, beginning a tour. You know, Prine's seventy years old. You don't know how many more chances you are going to get to see this great singer-songwriter, and every chance I get, I'm going to do it. You know, we've been on this uh, Dylan Nobel kick lately in the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to finally
3: said he was speechless. Thank yeah, you.
1: And I'm going to mention Dylan again in context of that. You know, when you talk about the great songwriters, the great literary songwriters, here is what Dylan had to say about John Prine a couple of years ago. Prime stuff is pure Proustian existentialism. <laughs> Midwestern mind trips to the nth degree. And I don't think he was messing around. Uh, Dylan was an early champion of Prime's music. He would appear with him on stage occasionally. Johnny Cash was another fan. He named four songwriters... That he considered above all the rest, John Prine was one of them. Uh, that's a pretty big, yeah, pretty big honor from Johnny Cash. That's nice company Cash. to keep. So you know, here's this kid. This kid is son of a Kentucky coal miner. He was a mail carrier in Maywood, Illinois, uh, and that's where he would make up these songs. You know, because it's kind of a boring job. There's a lot of time, you know, to think. Uh, you're you're walking around in silence, and he's coming up with these songs. He was a mechanic in the army for a couple of years. Came back to Chicago. Started playing at open mic nights. At at a place called the Fifth Peg. Prine was the young whippersnapper on the scene. Got a great review from one Roger Ebert, a film critic, <laughs> moonlighting as a music critic that one night. Roger had opinions on everything. And then Chris Christopherson was persuaded to come and see him and was blown away, and he ended up getting a record deal. But while he was still an unknown in Chicago, he was playing there three times a week and crafting these great songs, songs like Sam Stone and Donald and Lydia, coming at uh, things from a truly different perspective. And one of the things I always admired about Prine's music was empathy, the idea to uh, identify with people who had basically been erased mm. from society, from even their own families, these marginal characters, and dignifying them in his songs. One of those songs that I think, I, I think is his greatest song in my mind, it's called Angel from Montgomery. It's about a 47-year-old woman trapped in a marriage that leaves her feeling lonelier and lonelier every day. And there's this great line at the end, how the hell can a person go to work in the morning and come home in the evening and have nothing to say? She's talking about the relationship with her husband and she feels trapped in it. So for this, you know, young guy, from Maywood, Illinois, to, to be singing that. from that woman's perspective and so identifying with. Bonnie Raitt uh, was blown away by it. She covered that song. She said, that song spoke to me so loudly as a young woman, and she considers it the finest song she's ever covered. Here's a very early version of Prine singing this song at the fifth peg before he was discovered in Chicago. It's Angel from Montgomery by John Prine on Sound Opinions. When
6: I was a young girl, will I had me a cowboy. He weren't much to look at, just a free rambling man. But that was a long time, and no matter how I try, the years just flow by like a broken down dam. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to To believe in this living is just a hard way to go There's flies in the kitchen I can hear them there buzzing And I ain't done nothing since I woke up today How the hell can a person Go to work in the morning And come home in the evening And have nothing to say Make me an angel That flies from Montgomery Make me a poster Of an old rodeo Just give me one thing That I can hold on to to believe in this living is just the hard way to go.
3: John Prine, live in Chicago with Angel from Montgomery. Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox. Pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Jim, you know, this election season just drags on and on, and a lot of people are saying they're going to move to Canada, no matter what the result <laughs> is. Well, we're going to get you ready for that little vacation. Uh, we're going to talk about the music of Canada next week. Sounds like fun. Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banaszak, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
6: Ring my phone. Baby, please ring my phone. Baby, please ring my phone.
7: Ring my phone tonight. New Messages. I just listened to your show on Hal and Renny Sparks and the Handsome Family and was so happy to listen to them. Um, I used to go to their shows back in the 90s when they still lived in Chicago and loved seeing them. I saw them at Chubas and the Hideout and places like that. But my very favorite Handsome Family performance ever was out on the middle of Lake Michigan on something called Mike's Midnight Love Cruise. And I remember Randy Sparks Standing on a boat, singing, wearing a long blue chiffon evening gown, just like the one that Shelley Winters wore on the Poseidon Adventure, which was really great for singing on a boat. I believe they also sang The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was pretty perfect, too, for all of us landlubbers taking a little midnight love cruise adventure. Um, They were great, and I was really happy to hear them on your show. Thanks for having them
0: on. Uh, Hi, guys. This is Tony from Minneapolis. I am calling in response to uh, the last podcast of the songs that give you the creeps. Um, Atmosphere is a local hip hop duo from Minneapolis. They've been around for quite a while, and I want to recommend one of their tracks um, that's always kind of given me chills. Uh, became by Atmosphere. It's a song about a guy uh, camping with a friend, and the friend goes missing. He starts tracking footprints and then sees the tracks of a wolf following his friend.
1: Trying to find service on my cell phone. I felt all right with my knife on my belt, though. I
2: hope the wolf is intimidated by you. I wondered if you even knew it was behind you.
1: Stalking you Maybe watching you Waiting for the opportunity To hop on top of you Salivating Wanna take you to the stomach In the cartoons You would've turned into a
2: drumstick
0: It's got a real wicked twist at the end But I love the artist's tone And the lyrics As they ramp up some curiosity To worry And then end in a full-out panic and fear Like being hunted in the Woods Thanks for all that you do Hey guys, this is John from New Braunfels, Texas and I'm calling about the, uh, the great show you guys did on scary music for Halloween and immediately what came to mind was after waiting for years um, for a new Peter Gabriel album uh, the album Up came out uh, and the opening track is Darkness uh, I remember tearing open the wrapper uh, the, the, the on the album and putting it on the turntable and dropping the needle down on that first track and, and it just starts off very quiet and and you're listening intently and uh like you do on most peter gabriel songs and then i reached over and i turned the volume up as high as i could to try to hear it better and then bam it just scares the crap out of you the lyrics don't get any less scary start starting off with walking through the undergrowth to the house in the woods the deeper i go the darker it gets and then they get even scarier when it when he says i'm scared of swimming in the sea dark shapes moving under me Every fear I swallow makes me small. It's just classic. <laughs> but I wanted to share that with you guys. And uh love your show. And you guys, keep up the great work. Take care. I'm
4: scared of swimming in the sea. Dark shapes moving under me. Every fear I swallow makes me small. Inconsequential things occur. Alarms are triggered. Memories stir. It's not the way it has to be.
6: No more messages.
3: To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.